Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When human beings discuss society and culture, we do so with an unstated premise that there is such a thing as a correct society and that such a society is attainable through correct ideas or actions. Unfortunately, and far from its own ideal, this assumption bolsters self-righteousness, perpetuates societal ills, and amplifies suffering in the world. The genealogy in Matthew's Gospel undermines and opposes this premise by recounting the perpetual decline of human kingdoms in the Bible from generation to generation. In doing so, Matthew dismantles our dangerous belief in a utopia, paving instead a path to the Lord's kingdom a non-utopia that gives hope in the midst of and in opposition to the unideal reality in which every generation finds itself. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 1 verses 10 to 11. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 226 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We often talk about societal decline. People speak now more frequently than ever before about the decline of American society. But what I find interesting when you read the genealogy in Matthew is that you have societies, if you will, perpetually in decline. I think the proposition of scripture, Richard, is that anything man builds is already in decline from the moment it's established. So when you hear the critique on this podcast, when you hear us allude to the decline of our culture, you have to hear it through a scriptural filter. Don't hear it through a narcissistic or nihilistic filter, which is the most common filter used today in the media. We're not saying it's doom and gloom, the end of the world. You can't talk that way if you're scriptural. We're simply saying what Matthew is saying, that there is a bad seed and the bad seed produces a problematic result. Matthew wants to make a point about how any culture is always in decline. And there's a specific way that culture is in decline. And to know those specifics, you have to go back to what we have in the Old Testament and understand the progression that you see. What are the peccadilloes of these kings that cause the decline? If you don't know those, you can't understand the first chapter of Matthew, the first chapter of the New Testament. Listeners need to spend the time to go and familiarize themselves with First and Second Kings. What is the sin? How does this reflect the decline of this culture? And what does it say about the decline of our own culture? Listen with those ears 
as you go through these chapters in Matthew, but also Kings and Chronicles. And what we're saying is something fundamentally different than what the Christian right is saying. Because remember, we are not saying anything. We're simply trying to explain what Matthew is saying. When you listen to Christian conservatives in the United States, they speak as though if we simply act righteously, then we'll save the culture. But that's not what I read in Matthew. Because in Matthew, Hezekiah acted correctly, and one generation later, there is a forgetting of everything Hezekiah taught and strove for. So you'll never convince me that if we simply do a reform and convince everyone to agree with us about how to be correct, that we're going to save anything. This is a betrayal of scripture because you want still to build something worldly. There is no worldly Jerusalem, period. There is no utopic or ideal society, period. There is simply human society perpetually in decline in every generation in need of the mercy and intervention of the scriptural God in the content of his story. There's a vain belief in the power of human ingenuity and hard work that if only the sons of Hezekiah tried harder to do the right thing, if only they put more effort into doing the right thing, then Judah would have been saved. It's if, but, however, they could have, should have, would have. It's all vain talk. The point of Matthew chapter 1 is that this is precisely what happened. Could it have happened any other way? No, it could not have. We only have what happened, not what could have happened. Realize this is the trajectory. This is the direction that things move. And not only was Judah in decline, we talked recently about Israel also being in decline in the northern kingdom. That's less of a concern in Matthew. But even Assyria, the empire that took them both over, was also in decline. There is no way that human ingenuity and a little bit of elbow grease is going to make the kingdom last forever. And it's striking, not only that there was a forgetting immediately following Hezekiah, but that this forgetting led immediately to the deportation to Babylon. So all of the crazy theories about how if we just put the Ten Commandments back in the Supreme Court, everything will be fine, are crazy theories, and they're anti-scriptural. So please make the effort with us not to submit to an ideology that is somehow comforting. Make the effort with us to submit to the scriptural God in the content of his scriptural story. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh's the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Now, right off the bat, Richard, I've hinted at this in my emphasis on the forgetting one generation after Hezekiah, the name Manasseh, it's Manasseh or Manasseh in Greek, comes from the Hebrew term Menashe, which means causing to forget. This name in Genesis is attributed to this child because the child comes as a comfort because of the loss of a spouse, the mother of Manasseh. And so he causes the father to forget the grief caused by his wife. And so that's the original meaning of this word when it's given as one of the sons of Joseph, 
who's adopted by Jacob as one of the 12 tribes. That's the origin of the forgetting, the one who causes to forget, which has an ironic sense when he is the son of the one who established all of these new policies regarding worship and centralization of worship, and he seems to have forgotten and caused the people to forget those good policies that his father put in place. And of course, the name Amon means master workman, and what's striking here is that we're continuing the language of infrastructure, because there's a debate in scholarship about the meaning of Josiah. It could mean the Lord supports or the Lord heals. Some scholars rely on the Arabic to construct the etymology for Josiah, which would lend itself to the meaning the Lord heals. But when you look at Amon, who's the master workman, and then you think of the word Josiah as relating to something that has a structure like a pillar or a bulwark, you have a very beautiful literary contrast because if we're talking about a master workman who wants to build something that will support Judah, we're just one verse away from the deportation. So what is it that was constructed? What did Ammon build? What is your bulwark against the deportation? What's going on in Judah? Right, and the important context to keep in mind during this part of the story is that the northern kingdom was eliminated, deported by the Assyrian Empire, and Manasseh was the first king to reign in the south without an Israelite kingdom to the north, but instead an Assyrian kingdom to the north, which is much more threatening, much more dangerous, and Manasseh did everything he could to appease the one in the north, because who holds the power of death when Assyria is surrounding you? Assyria, clearly. So his concern is about Assyria, not about the Lord of hosts whom Hezekiah tried to move the kingdom towards. Manasseh reigned for a long time, many decades, and set the kingdom on a trajectory that respected and feared Assyria more than their god. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Now here, I want to talk about the deportation to Babylon and how it functions in the New Testament. Typically, when Christians or Jews talk about the Babylonian exile, Jacob Neusner, the brilliant and famed Jewish scholar, talks about different crises in the history of Judaism. One of them is the conversion of Constantine, but before the conversion of Constantine, the exile. I disagree with Neusner in terms of the content of Scripture. Not that these were or were not crises, but I think viewing it through the lens of history, the way both Christians and Jews do, is incorrect. I think you have to understand it as scriptural teaching. Because then you can see the thread that connects the deportation to Babylon with the crucifixion. Because the novelty of the Old Testament is that unlike the historical kingdoms who are fighting to survive... Scripture is saying that God's will is manifest in the destruction. It's really important to understand this. So then you see the decline of all of these kings that are trying to build something that will survive. You see their decline culminating in the deportation. It's easy then to make the same conclusion that the Christian right makes today, that if we only put the Ten Commandments back in the Supreme Court, then America will be here for another thousand years. That's completely irrelevant to the scriptural narrative. 
the point that I'm making is that God rescues us from the line of the kings through destruction, which is how the cross functions in the New Testament. So there is a definite connection between the destruction of Jerusalem, the failure of the kings to build something that can rise to ascendancy, and God's salvation and victory and his support of his community in the destruction of the Messiah. We see the counterpoint to this narrative among the kings because as the Lord is manifesting his will in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, what happens is the southern kingdom of Judah becomes more afraid of Assyria than of the Lord of hosts. And what do they do? How do they manifest this? They reject the centralization of the worship of the one God that Hezekiah attempted to establish, which he didn't completely establish. He was not 100% successful. And then through the fear, they continued to move along the line of idolatry and even the worship of Moloch and sacrificing children. This is according to scripture. So the fear of the other kingdom, the fear of their culture being taken over, forced them into idolatry. And this is where we have the problem in our own culture because people think if we fear the other culture, if we fear ISIS, if we fear Hollywood, if we fear China, it's going to make us stronger. But in fact, what it does is it pushes us into idolatry. When we were told after 9-11 that we should all go shopping, this is the clearest manifestation of the sin of Manasseh and Ammon, which is when the going gets tough, the tough become idolaters. They go after the other gods that would preserve them. Oh my goodness, if we have another 9-11, it's going to ruin our economy. We're going to have to go shopping to be the bulwark of our economy. Our master craftsmen, the economists, have to make our society withstand the threat of Assyria at our borders. No, the only solution is to double down on the Lord alone as the only one who can protect us, as the only one whose will is good, as the only one who loves the human race, and we have to go with him alone and his teaching. And if we move one iota from that teaching, then our line will end up inevitably in the deportation as it did even with the so-called good king, Josiah. Here's the twist. We've been talking about Hezekiah in a way through the lens of historicity that if you try to reform, it's still going to lead to decline. But now that we understand the deportation as the will of God, one could also make the case that Hezekiah's attempt to preach the Torah hastened the judgment of the Lord against his own people who wrought the deportation to Babylon unto life at their expense. It's a powerful argument that completely undermines the way that people use religion to build their idols. Is the Torah given to secure life for the kingdom of Judah or the kingdom of Israel? Or is the Torah given to secure life, which may necessitate the destruction of Judah? Now we're talking business and scripture, which is why it's very problematic when Christians try to make the claim that if we just live a certain way, America will be around for another thousand years. If we say Merry Christmas at Target, the culture will be saved 
and the Lord will shine upon us and we'll have more gifts every Christmas from now on thanks to the God of Christmas sales and we confuse the God who was born to be crucified with the one who was born in order to buy more stuff at Target. Let me make sure we're clear because very often on the Bible as Literature podcast we're so ambiguous. This way of thinking is anti-scriptural. The biblical seed is interested in producing the reality of the kingdom so that when you face tyranny, you are not subject to it. The biblical seed is not interested in building your tyranny in opposition to someone else's tyranny, which is how Christians talk today. It's interested in the destruction of tyranny beginning with your destruction. This is the radicality of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it is the only response to the insanity that dominates the airwaves today. The cross is the only valid response. It's the answer to violence. It's the answer to cruelty. It's the answer to indecency. There's a discussion going on now about torture in this culture. My answer to anyone who tries to make the case that it's okay to cause the suffering of another person is the cross. If you can't identify your enemy with Jesus on the cross, you're missing the point of the genealogy and you're taking the side of these kings. Some people would say that we as Christians are required to alleviate the suffering of others. In fact, we take on the suffering of others. We want to torture in order to save our own skins. We need to save their skins and let the suffering come to us. This is the way of the cross. This is what Jesus did. This is what the cross means. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what it means when the martyrs went out in order to save the Roman Empire. They allowed themselves to be eaten by the lions. This is what it means. You sacrifice your own self. Americans, they want to sacrifice themselves, but they won't sacrifice their air conditioning or their car. Death at the hands of the unbelievers is tolerable, but traffic jams are not. And so we have to be willing to take on that suffering of others, completely emptying ourselves of every comfort we believe we're entitled to in order for the other to be comforted. Now, the factuality of human history is the power of the word. It's different than trying to view scripture through the lens of human history. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that the factuality of human history, the way things go for nations and empires, supports and magnifies the power of the word because the word is speaking factually about the way things go in the world. Meaning whatever your politics, whatever the trend, whatever's happening in your society, Scripture begins with the factual premise that your society will eventually end. That's the point. And when it does end, you will know that the Lord is God because he told you that it would come to an end. That's how Scripture plays on human psychology and human history. Your society will end. And remember that when it does, it will be because you are disobedient. That's how the deportation to Babylon functions. Scripture capitalizes on the factuality of disaster and decline in order to point us back to the power of 
its instruction. The way that we understand the flow of the king to king and the inevitable end, the destruction in Babylon, the one thing that does not end is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is eternal. The kings of Judah will pass away, but there will be one whom we'll meet soon in the story who is called the son of David. We'll talk about what that means later on. Who is called the son of David, who actually attributes himself only to the kingdom of heaven, not to the kingdom of Judah, not to the Romans, and he believes in one master, and that is his God. And we'll see how that plays out. We cannot understand Jesus as Matthew depicts him without understanding these kings and where the line ends up. And the kingdom of the heavens is the true disruptor because when you are held captive in a foreign land, if you submit to the scriptural God through his instruction, even though you're held captive, you are free because you are a citizen of the kingdom that is coming. That is the power of scripture so that as your societies perpetually decline, as your societies come and go, you have a single anchor of hope that sustains you until the next generation so that the message can be repeated. That is what is going on in this text. That is why the genealogy is so critical. Father, it sounds like you're getting into Ezekiel now where the word actually appeared on the waters of the Kabar River in Babylon. But we don't want to get too far afield. Thanks very much, Dr. Ben. Thank you, Father. The Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.